0: And welcome to another episode of the Friday Tech Roundup. Roundup with you today, you've got myself. I'm Ellie, and we've also got Andy Teb. Hello. We are going to be running through the news of the week, commencing 13th of September. There's some really juicy bits in um, from the world of tech. Some covering medicine. We've got innovation up in Scotland. We've got Snowflake's um, latest platform. So quite a lot to get through, but we're hoping you'll enjoy it as much as we do. So let's jump in first up. We have uh, Snowflake. So they have launched the financial services data cloud to accelerate customer-centric and data-driven innovation in the financial services industry. This new service unites Snowflake's industry-tailored platform governance capabilities, partner-delivered solutions, and industry-critical data sets to enable organizations to accelerate their top-line growth and innovation while mitigating risk. Really cool stat which came out of this was, what, approximately 57% of financial services firms in the Fortune 500 are currently using Snowflake, and considering it's still considered quite mm. a new kid on the block, that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, yeah, and their partner enablement, which is what we care about, is uh, is excellent. Um, so you've got our salespeople, our solution architects. Um, loads of our engineers going through that at the moment because they have a real emphasis on the quality of delivery. Not very prescriptive in terms of you must do it in our way, but they really want to ensure that if you're working with them, you've absolutely got the knowledge and understanding of the product. I I think what was interesting there around that 57% number was you probably see similar, in fact you do see similar kinds of statistics for not the same products, not directly comparable products, but within that sphere, within that sort of data capability that we have. So things like Databricks, um, things like Splunk, things like New Relic, have huge overlap with each other. And I think it really speaks to the almost promiscuity of organizations in looking at the tools that they want to use in the data space. And I'm never entirely sure if that reflects a lack of certainty or like a mature willingness to have a big, broad toolbox of tools in that space. I think that's still very much um, unfolding at the moment as organisations in our industry get to grips with what data looks like, what best practices, what range of capabilities you want to have, um, and, you know, things like the, the, the proliferation of data robot in terms of just helping you pick the right algorithm for the data sets that you're looking at speaks to some of that uncertainty around not so much which horse to back, but which is going to be best for what we want to do with these products. Um, but snowflake is a great product. And it's got some really interesting concepts, um, particularly in terms of collaboration, because it's like, why would you go to their cloud rather than buying a product like Databricks and installing it on your own VPC? Well, it's cause you get that cross collaboration capability, um, by using their cloud offering um i think some really interesting stuff you could do with that and and obviously there is we we, you know we're all forced to go through the track well not forced we want to you know everyone everyone likes racking up certs but um but you know it it it, going through that to really understand the capabilities um I, i i think it's interesting some really interesting possibilities people like sean robertson Uh, from our data practice talk on this really interestingly. But again, I think we're still trying to unfold and and figure out what those capabilities will mean and how we can plug them into our broader set of capabilities because the the data on its own means nothing. It's how it integrates with your engineering uh, tool chain. It's how that then informs your CX. So once we figured it out, once we've got those insights a bit better and we understand how to plug it all in together, Um, I think we'll be able to offer customers something really interesting and compelling. Right now, though, we're just responding to customer demand for help us do a snowflake migration. I think where we're going to be really anxious is to get to the point where we can offer further insight and value beyond the migration itself, how organizationally you can leverage this. But, yeah, super interesting article, super interesting product, like you say, very new to have such coverage and depth.
0: It is. And I think, as you were saying, it's just the obviously, the importance, the integration across, the migration across is obviously what is happening now. But the good thing about Snowflake is they're looking at the end-to-end solution and they managed to build out like, yeah. a global and cross-cloud data sharing capability. So when you're looking at the financial services, there's like a massive ecosystem they can tap into. And actually, that's, that's a great benefit to both consumers, but also the FS space.
1: There's a really interesting insight for the listeners there, though, in um, the sort of confused ramblings from me. <laughs> followed by um your ability to make that quite nice and concise. That that that's literally our solutions and marketing <laughs> yeah, work
0: together. Yeah. I thought I'd just reiterate what you said so that we really took it <laughs> over them after listening to us.
1: But in a much clearer, more concise yes. fashion.
0: <laughs> I try. I do try. Um, number two, we got the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights has called for a ah oh, the word more.
1: moratorium
0: thank you on the sale and use of ai systems that pose a serious risk to human rights as a matter of urgency so we spent a couple of weeks talking about ai and obviously the troubling nature around it in fact louise fenn has just released a blog two of them in fact from an ai series talking about what ai is um the risks of it the challenges that we're facing today so it's really interesting read they're up on the website but this particular piece of news what's interesting about it is again they're also starting to look at the nature of ai and the fact that really there's no governance over it and actually there's not a lot of transparency over the algorithms that go into making ai what it is or the tools that have been produced mm. so as they said the commissioner wants to put in place at least until adequate safeguards are implemented um, and they're calling for an outright ban on ai applications that cannot be used in compliance with international human rights law which again i think is sensible until there's such a time where we can actually fully understand what it is we're dealing with
1: and how it cue, cue the screams and howls of indignation from the guys <laughs> who work in this field saying, but now you've constrained my ability to innovate. Well, it's like, yeah, because we don't want you to ruin the world. And, and I think we were saying about three weeks ago that the threat from AI, although some people would say it is the threat, isn't Skynet from the Terminator films. Yeah. It's algorithms that lead to a dystopian future where where you're born, what your medical history is, your ethnicity, your gender determines what you will and won't be able to do in future. Um, because, you know, AI run amok is going to make people say that, that there is that element of, well, the algorithm told me so, so it must be right. Yeah, That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. And And coupled with the kinds of stories that we're reading in the papers today about you know, in the sort of post-Brexit world, we're going to be able to take apart some of the legislation and rules that we're looking at. Now, the the um, white paper that we were looking at the other day from the European Union around how to govern AI. Yeah. Obviously, isn't law, wasn't carried over when we left the European Union. But that type of regulation and framework um, for the operation of AI and ML is the kind of thing that you need to look at if you want something that's actually good and robust. And I think there's many parallels. If you look at, you know, people talk about Delaware as a state in the US being a low tax haven, and that's why all the Fortune 500 companies bar one, I think, are registered in Delaware. But actually, the real reason why they're registered there is because of the excellent corporate governance standards it's a it, really good environment it's got really good state law mm-hmm. about how you run a company and how a company operates and that is the reason a lot of corporate lawyers regardless of where you are you could be on the west coast of america they'll still incorporate your company in delaware They yeah. the people follow the best standards because they want that predictability and understandability i think That's probably where the strongest, best future AI products are going to come from is environments where they're heavily regulated in terms of not over-regulation, but just having a framework that ensures that the algorithm is accurate that it isn't biased, that kind of thing. Because yeah. so ultimately, if you want to get insights, you prefer them to be true and not just telling you what you want to hear.
0: But also, surely that's, as you said, that's not just um, the importance of the governance, of the governing bodies, but also as an individual or a business, surely that is also an aspiration that you'd want to, you know, lead your business by. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, well, I mean, there was uh, there was a great piece of satire that we didn't realise how far ahead of its time it was, but the guy wrote uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to a Galaxy, Douglas Adams indeed also wrote a series of detective novels called Dirk Gentley's holistic detective agency okay. and there was a great just as an aside like a sub story about the fact that someone had made loads of money by creating an ai program that would give you the justifications for the decision you wanted to make oh, now essentially that's what we've created with a lot of ai and ml yeah. because you do unconscious bias when you're training it, and you end up getting it to where you want it to be. Yeah. So we accidentally created that exact thing. Of course, in there, he's like, "Yeah, we sold it to U.S. Defense Department, so they cool. can basically yeah. justify whatever they wanted to do." You know. <laughs> but that, but that is how we're baby stepping ourselves into a situation with AI and ML. Yeah. So, you know, fine if that's going to be around. What color of uh, I don't know. Uh, aluminium cans to use when you're releasing the next drink from Pepsi. Yeah. Who cares? But bigger when it affects human rights.
0: This is the thing, and you know you mentioned earlier about this idea of people uh, grabbing their pitchforks because of innovation being slowed down. But actually, this isn't saying that. What it's saying is like um, there's going to be restrictions on the sale and use of AI systems. So you can absolutely innovate with them. You can still do your trial and practices and um, you know the behind the scenes stuff. What they're saying is, but we want to make sure it's safe before you execute it and take it any further than that. So absolutely, and lab and
1: start Yeah, and start affecting real people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So actually, yeah. I, I think it's a really fair thing. I don't think it's limiting innovation at all. I think actually it's just, again, as you said, I think yes. it's understanding that if they don't catch it now. It's just going to scale with speed. And so we might have yeah, to put yeah, yeah. it in the bottle while we can. And we've got yeah. To
1: over it. yeah, getting the genie back in the bottle will be tough on this one. About 100%. Um, so, so, yeah, do it do well and do it early. Yeah. I think people have got to be able to answer those questions that academics like James Mickens put out there in their speech, in their talks. No, where is your testing where is your robust testing framework around AI and ml yeah. because you wouldn't you wouldn't go to market without it in place for other services so why would you for AI and ml how do you know it's giving you the right answer
0: 100 percent mm. so number three uh, the met commissioner has said that tech giants are hindering efforts to stop terrorists. <laughs> So There's been reported that tech companies' focus on end to end encryption technology is making it harder, if not impossible, to identify and stop the terrorists. Saying that terrorist groups are now exploiting platforms to reach, recruit, and inspire anyone, anywhere, and at any time through social media and the internet. This comes after, so Dame Crescida.
1: Crescida Dick.
0: Yeah, uh, Dame Crescida Dick concerns, echo uh, actually that of uh, Home Secretary um, Patel who last week launched the Safety Tech Challenge Fund at tackling child sexual abuse online. And actually, as part of that program, five applications um, will be awarded a certain amount to develop new technology that enables the detection of child sexual abuse material online without breaking end-to-end encryption. So what's interesting is obviously they have noticed a problem, but they're obviously trying to encourage innovation around this idea of how do we keep end-to-end encryption, which we've heard you know, time and time again, is is of value to consumers and privacy laws there, and also businesses as well, right? Making sure that their um, their data isn't being shared when it doesn't want to be shared, but also by allowing people to also make sure that the important stuff can still be detected. So,
1: mm. I um I, I have a sort of anti-authoritarian streak a mile wide, okay. as we probably established. And I, I get I get worried about so so I think. I think to some extent they're right about the um, grooming, the outreach. Uh, I don't think it just apply. I think it does apply to terrorism. I think they're often thinking in terms of things like Islamic State, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think if you look at the rise of sort of the white domestic terrorist, um, you know, the far right groups, all that kind of stuff, which is a far bigger problem from a numbers and damage perspective. Agreed. Um, you know, YouTube, Facebook, very difficult for that. Mm-hmm if you look at like the top ten most shared articles on Facebook, usually nine out of ten will be heavy right wing anti vax, anti authoritarian stuff that you kinda of like that some of this is worrying. So I think they could do a better job there. I'm not entirely sure that's what Dame The Dick is thinking about though, because yeah. he does tend to be come out of the school of, you know, you know, stop and search is a useful thing and it isn't racial profiling. Um, you know, terrorists are terrorists.
0: Yeah, because just that you're taking a guess, right? For a lot of the time, you're taking yeah. a guess. It's an educated guess at best. But when you're tackling um, children sexual abuse, so like that's quite a specific thing that you're you're searching for. Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, and and this this fundamentally is the worry for me, right? Like, I, I. I I do think that the large tech companies need to take a more responsible stand. And I think actually that would be better controlled by legislation in terms of fact-checking, in terms of extremist content, all that good stuff. When you start talking about removing end-to-end encryption and having the powers and ability to see what's going on in your hard drive and in your home, that, that invasion of privacy, it's like you're trading certain liberties for certain elements of safety. And where I worry is that, you know, People like the current Mac Commissioner, people like Pretty Patel, their motivations aren't always that honest and and noble. I think the Edward Snowden stuff showed what happens, which is that people do abuse it yeah. within, you know, the powers that they do abuse it. Mm-hmm. How much does it actually help in terms of seeing off terrorism? You get into, you know, this is, our Mac Commissioner is the person who shot the guy on the tube. She didn't physically do it, but she authorized it, right? Yeah. This is the person who's has a tendency towards knee-jerk responses. If you think about Sarah Everard, the protests after she died at the hands of a policeman, that was very heavily policed. You know, you were talking about women at a vigil getting kneeled on by police officers. Meanwhile, anti-vax protests were not given that same level of policing.
0: Or white blokes protecting statues. Indeed.
1: (laughs) Indeed. And, and, And the reason I'm mentioning this is because there is a there is an authoritarian streak there that assumes that they're doing the right thing and doesn't leave a lot of room for the sort of reflection about hang on these are subjective decisions and are we making the wrong ones are we are we are we prioritizing the wrong things and we're talking about giving a lot of power to these people yeah um so i worry about this you know i i always worry that they never articulate in numbers based in metrics based this, how safe it makes us in terms yeah. of the number of plots that are disrupted as a result yeah they, they they will talk about one or two key examples but in our business we call that anecdotes and the plural of anecdotes is not data it's stories yeah and and so it's not affected so i i worry if if, if i was to go to a country like new zealand or Canada, Canada maybe not, but you know like there, there are countries with very strong civil society and and governance and ethics within their government Yeah, um, and, and their police forces I, and they've still got problems don't get me wrong but I'd, I'd be far more inclined to be more trusting of it than, than I am when it's you know an American police department, a British police department um, it just it is deeply disconcerting, and I don't think we have we don't make the room for the right conversations. It becomes far too binary. It's are you pro or anti terrorist, right? literally is about to say it,
0: it, they, all they seem to have done is slapped so fear word on the thing. Is that you? But you quite rightly pointed out earlier. Well, how are we weighing the success of this? How many terrorists are we hoping to catch? But like, what else is actually going to help safety measures? There's no real um, suggestion of, of you know what we can hope to see, and it's just as you said. that but people all of a sudden go well. Absolutely, we need to let them monitor us a little bit more closely. And actually, like that's not necessarily the right thing to do, and it could be abused. Just um, so I think if you
1: look at the history, you know, there's uh, we've had the recent rulings on Daniel Morgan murder trial. You know, it's, it's the inquiry there was there collusion between the press and the police. You can look at things like the All Green miners' strikes, you can look at things like Hillsborough, yeah. you can look at the involvement of undercover agents in quite benign, innocuous groups like environmental groups, yeah. where they're fathering children with women undercover without telling the women who they are. Yeah. There's a point at which these organizations have to understand that it's not reasonable to go, but now we've changed. <laughs> Because, because at no point have they demonstrated that change. For you know, I mean, the the mcpherson Inquiry said that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist. It's very difficult to get the Metropolitan Police to accept that they were actually institutionally racist, even though they said the words. Oh, but I want and to report to right, little...
0: suggest that the UK has no systemic racism in it at all.
1: Indeed, so, indeed, you indeed, know, surely. indeed, and you know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, and you, and you can sound facetious making these points. I often do, although a lot of that is my Mancunian accent. It just sounds facetious. But the point is, though, that it's these organisations yeah. with real problems and, and real issues to address who are saying, but you can trust us with this. Yeah.
0: The scary thing is, though, all the stories that you just listed, they're the ones we know about, and that's what's yeah. more terrifying because they're the ones who mm. either slip through or maybe they actually let us see it so they're like, oh, okay, we you throw in one bad apple, they, you know, they make back off of us a little bit. But.
1: Well, well people, people always forget the rest of that. Um, you know, the rest of that same. You know, bad apple will spoil the barrel. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. You know, for every corrupt police officer, there are police officers around them who don't say anything because it's awkward. Yep. And they facilitate and enable that corruption. Mm. And that is the true problem within uh, our police forces when that kind of thing happens. No one joins the police to be corrupt. You know, the plotline for The Departed is like just okay. ridiculous. But the but the point is though, it 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 creeps in and yeah. it's got a corrosive effect. And it and there's a real unwillingness to acknowledge that and. I'm not saying that they don't need the powers, maybe they do, but there's very little room to have a sensible conversation that says, well, for organisations with so many public failures, yeah. where they suffer so few consequences. You know, the the last police officer I can remember getting uh, prosecuted for uh, murder or manslaughter, well, mans- murder is very difficult to get done for in the UK, but manslaughter, mm. you know, can't remember. And then there's been two this year. Now." great that there's been two this year who were found guilty for actual murders but to go so long before that and have so many people die in custody it doesn't increase confidence that these are organisations that self-examine so i just i I worry when i see these kinds of stories maybe they do need the powers but how can you ensure that they won't be abused that they have as they have been in the past but
0: also absolutely and i think what's really interesting is if you look at the police crime sentencing and courts bill that has been trying to trying to get pushed through this year um what's interesting about it is actually a lot of police officers were interviewed and they said we don't want additional powers so we don't need them and so it's interested about where that data is coming from and actually this is what they're pushing for and actually a lot of a lot of police officers um in reaction to that specific bill said i don't think we need these powers at all i think that it's pushing for something that's actually now state control rather than actually giving us things that will enable our jobs to be any easier or make People safer, which obviously would be the whole point of the bill. So, very interesting to know where this information is coming from and how they support it with confidence.
1: I think the bigger, more interesting conversation isn't about um, those powers to the police. I I think it's more around getting tech companies to think through the consequences of their actions, and it actually ties in nicely to the previous conversation around AI and algorithms. Obviously, it's not a human rights thing, but. You know, Google set themselves the OKR for YouTube to get more than a billion views in a year. You know, so tough metric, and they did everything they could to get that. Yeah. The consequences of that were algorithms that saw what you wanted to watch and kept feeding you more. Yeah. And that's why people would go on the famous spiral where they started out watching one video, weren't paying attention, yeah. and five hours later in the background they've got an ISIS recruitment video. Yeah, you know, and it's, yeah. this is. That is the true consequence of algorithms that are just set off like a cruise missile at a particular output. Yeah. The, the, the big tech companies have got to ask themselves some difficult questions there, whether it's, whether it's live streaming the Christchurch shootings on Facebook, whether it's, you know, that they, they, they have to question the behaviors and what's happening there. And they've got the ability to react quickly. I think any, any company like YouTube that can demonetize and take down your video because you're playing some copyrighted music has the ability to react quickly. Absolutely. Right, it's just <laughs> what are they going to act quickly on? Oh, I love so it. So that, that's the more interesting conversation for me in terms of the impact it could have. Yeah, you would close off a lot of recruitment and a lot of the PR abil- ability of these groups to communicate. Yeah. That for me is a far more interesting conversation than the end-to-end encryption one. I worry though that people like pretty patel people like see the will actually say but we want to be able to see everything if we can see everything we can stop it happening yeah it's like can you can
0: you
1: <laughs> yeah. anyway right. very very deep meaningful stuff for a friday round good stuff
0: good <laughs> stuff i think you know flexion time is always a good time um mm. Number four. So this is actually pretty cool. A little bit more positive, perhaps, as a story. Um, Dockler, a virtual ward startup, has secured £2.4 million to further develop technology. Now, Dockler uses remote medical monitoring to care from home. helping hospitals alleviate the pressure on resources and enable the early discharge of patients while remaining under the care of of clinic
1: clinician. Thank you.
0: Um, their virtual wards have so far achieved a 29% reduction in emergency admissions and a 20% reduction in A&E attendance and the hope is that this investment will supercharge the startup's ambition to make virtual hospitals a core part of modern healthcare. No surprise, this is a Swedish company um, and they've been doing great things, like they've rolled it out in other, con- uh, in other countries. We're one of the next to adopt, hopefully. Um, But I think this is brilliant. And actually, I think if anything showed us over the pandemic is actually a lot of medical care can be, there are absolutely things that need to be done face-to-face, but there is Mm -hmm. a lot of this which can actually be done virtually from the comfort of a home where people feel safe. Um, And again, if you can do medical monitoring as well, it kind of enables around-the-clock care. Um, And again, the ability to kind of alert that or take it to the next level where needed, but actually on the whole, everyday monitoring can kind of be done in a place where people feel safer or more comfortable.
1: Uh, absolutely, I, th- I think it's uh, it's sad to talk about, but I think this could, you know, it has the potential to be transformative for things like palliative care. You know, if you, hospice care is so difficult, um, end of life care, that kind of thing, if you can do it in a home setting, but do it safely through yeah. the use of devices like this, if you can do things like adherence to much less intrusive, uh, medical care plans for things like cancers and stuff, where you're deploying chemotherapy probably through the use of things like implants, yeah. rather than the heavy single doses that people used to take on regimes. But you need quite close mo- clinical monitoring for that. And you're right; the you know the pandemic has driven home the ability to do a lot of this uh, kind of treatment remotely. I think I need to use the NHS three times during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and on each occasion, I think I think I spoke to my GP once. Everything else is done by our email. Immediate referrals to places like Guys and the Royal National Orthopaedic and stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky because I live in London, so we have some amazing health. Just but... London, but round the corner from London Bridge too. So... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah, but but you you know, you do get that amazing care, and I would get that if I go in and went into my doctors and saw them in person, but um you know they didn't even need to do that during the pandemic they made really grown up decisions about who they need to see and who they didn't and the referrals were very quick and all that and stuff if you could broaden that out yeah. for much scarier treatment plans where you need to see people less it's great for things like where you're trying to limit contact during the pandemic but it also allows doctors to get much more coverage around patients you know they'll be able to deal with more people via monitoring than they would if they had seen them in person um, I yeah, I just thought it's super interesting and super valuable to society. It, it yeah, really interesting startup.
0: Yeah, I mean, I am still one hundred percent. Have you ever heard of Baymax from Big are. Hero Six? No, no. Baymax is um, he's not a robot. He's kind of like the Marshmallow Man, um, but he's big and white and fluffy, and he lives. He's not even fluffy. He's just like full of air but he lives inside a suitcase and basically every morning or whenever you're feeling a bit blue or a bit sad or a bit ill you click a button he pops out
1: I do know this yeah he
0: he scans your body and he gives you a full like you know MRI scan in your in your bedroom in the lounge wherever you pop him up and um, he gives you a diagnosis of your like mental well-being of your your health um all that kind of good stuff and I kind of feel like it's really interesting if you can kind of have this medical monitoring at home it really isn't that far away from when you've actually got the ability in a machine or a Baymax of sorts to uh, actually give you that information um, in the conference.
1: So so we know what to uh, crowdfund and get you for Christmas now, probably in a decade or so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But he needs to do the uh, fist bump. That's the number one thing he has to learn first. can't do a fist bump, I don't want to.
1: It's not not good enough. You've sorted all my medical needs, but if (laughs) I'm not getting... Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair play. Fair play. If I'm, if I'm not getting the fist bump, then what's even the point?
0: Well, I am. I'm encouraged, right? If we're seeing this sort of stuff now getting um, good um, investments and I feel that Baymax is in, you might be able to come <laughs> it.
1: One, one day it will happen for me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I do. I do think it will be genuinely interesting to um, see how it goes, particularly like saying the sort of uh, palliative care years ago, um, I, I'm always a big advocate for them, but the uh, the wreath lectures from the BBC always excellent. And one year the topic was, uh, you know, medical care where it's going in future, and mm. um, the stuff on um, palliative care was incredibly interesting in terms of how can we make people's lives that bit better? How can we um, how can we ensure that the end of their life is as dignified and as meaningful to them and as painless as possible. Yeah. Um, and and this kind of monitoring, you know, brings forward the prospect of, of being able to deliver that for the good of our fellow citizens.
0: So talking about tech, we have at number five, um, slightly more positive piece of news, perhaps, uh, than some of the ones that we've covered today. But trials of a simple blood test that can detect more than 50 types of cancer before symptoms appear are being rolled out in the NHS. So the Galleria test can detect cancers that are not routinely screened for and can pinpoint where in the body the disease is coming from with a high degree of accuracy. Now, what's super interesting about this is it works by looking for chemical changes in fragments of genetic code. Um, And what they do is look for where the leaks are. So where tumors happen, um, they send leaks into your DNA and into your bloodstream. um, And that's what this blood test will pick up. Um, So what's really interesting about it is we this should enable us to be able to detect cancer long before we would have ever been able to, which is obviously super important for mm-hmm. a lot of uh, cancer types.
1: Mm. And and just the the fact that they're quite obscure cancers, some of them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we talk about cancer too simplistically sometimes as though it's one monolithic beast. You know, I think, what is it, one in four of us?
0: Oh my god, the yeah outstanding. Yeah, you know
1: we're we're going to have exactly. it in our lifetime, and of course yep. it's a it's a vast range of conditions and diseases, mm-hmm. and the fact that this has got such a broad spectrum uh, that it can pick up on and be interesting. We, we were saying early, you know, one well, of the sad, and I'm sure you know statistically it was the right choice to make, but but one of the sad effects of the pandemic has been the number of people who put off seeking treatment, and we, we all know people who you know wish they'd got diagnosed earlier and. And this has the real potential to make that happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just great. Anything anything that speeds up diagnosis, anything that speeds up getting people into treatment and having some certainty around what it is affecting them is to be yeah. applauded. Um, and, it, yeah, really interesting test. And, you know, we, we were joking around about, um, you know, Elizabeth Holmes is going on trial at the moment for the Theranos stuff. And this was kind of sort of the dream that her and her ill fated startup, which got far more money than any startup we've ever worked in, <laughs> um, th- th- this was part of the dream they were touting. But, um, you know, these guys have actually gone away and done it properly. Um, yeah. It's just just really impressive to see something that's going to make such a difference to people's lives. Very like the previous story we around Dockler, really. You know, it, it's nice when our industry, when technology, can deliver things that genuinely add value to people's lives it just makes you really proud of the field that we work in. It's not all about click increasing clicks for ad revenue, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's good stuff. Some Damn of it. it,
0: I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong industry again. Like, people <laughs> like marketing just gets pooped on every time. Yeah, have-
1: yeah. Marketing isn't advertising though, so you know. oh god,
0: I <laughs> know <laughs> it says, um. So just look at some stats, so 39.5% of men and women will be diagnosed with cancer at some point during their lifetime. So mm. anything we can do to help, again, make those detections earlier, give people the care they need sooner, and actually be able to hopefully remove tumours at a much earlier stage should hopefully mean that the life it's affecting is less affected um, and means yeah. that
1: hopefully and, can... and, ju- and And just acknowledging that it's not just, you can't test for cancer. You've yeah. you got to test for all of these different types. It's, yeah.
0: yeah um what's good to know about this is well not good to know about it but in part of that rollout the nhs is actually looking to recruit 140,000 volunteers in eight areas of england to see how well the test works in the health service so if you are between 50 and 70 letters are being sent from different um for two people from different backgrounds and ethnicities uh, to take part so if you do get a letter it'd be really interesting to see kind of you know what trials you are put up for but also yeah, you know, to see actually that this does work and it's really great to see that obviously they're trying to make it as inclusive as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just segmenting um, one group of people. So it's like hopefully just makes it a much more effective measure.
1: NHS R&D is really interesting, just given the huge cohort they've got available to them. You know, it's like some like 4 million people work for the NHS, but they effectively serve, what, almost 70 million customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the data set, the, the inform- we might not manage the pandemic pr- very well, but we've been a huge source of information to the rest of the world in terms of what happens with large cohorts who yep. all have the set all have a unique identifier that can be followed through the system, every element of their care. It just the statistical breadth is just mind-boggling. And if you know I am a person who signs up to be a guinea pig under the NHS r and d it's it's really interesting and they hardly ever call you but for example you might be going in for a treatment and they will contact you say oh we're interested in treatment outcomes before and after you have to go to a room and they take you to a massive questionnaire about things to get a baseline and then go have the treatment and then they check back in with you to do the same baseline because they're wanting to look at before and after and it can be for anything you know um or if you donate platelets and things like that that I used to, you know, they want to do loads of research around like your health and all that sort of stuff. But it's very little time and you're contributing to this massive store of information. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they've got that ability. There's, there's, it's one of the things the NHS does really well is understanding what clinical outcomes are. And in a world where half of the treatments that you encounter in a GP's um, surgery are evidence based. Yeah. And the other half are just the things we've always done that we know work. We just don't yeah. know why. Uh, the more research, the better, right?
0: Um... This is um, my partner's, uh, his dad is uh, Dr. Matthew Bacon. And his whole business, or it's certainly like the later part of his career, has been devoted to developing a piece of technology that works within surgery. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a really interesting fact that he stumbled across and the fact that a lot of surgeries are guesstimated yeah, so they'll, yeah. they'll guess that a broken arm would take two hours to fix and actually what his tool showed was actually it only takes half an hour so where you're scheduling in three operations a day because of the expected time it's going to take what we're showing you is actually you could fit in 10 in that time which mm-hmm. means you're moving through that queue system which has obviously been um, yeah. exaggerated because of the pandemic so mm-hmm. you're helping to move through the backlog but you're also making sure that those who need the care are seen a lot quicker because again you've got the right people on the shifts that need to be on the shifts uh, to make sure that these surgeries can go through and it was just such an interesting i mean that was my dinner table that conversation happened at but like i can't believe that somebody sat there and was like oh actually there's this little problem in the nhs that i can help solve yeah um, and it was very much about queue times and estimations and the fact that there was no data around that and i found that just mind-boggling that it was something that almost like an oversight but actually when you consider how much other things have been monitored within nhs like oversight is probably a bit harsh so
1: no 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 but i mean uh, if- that is essentially what we do right it's continuous improvement
0: yeah so and
1: when you're when you're operating at the scale that an organization like that does if you can save five minutes on something it's huge given the number of transactions and that's not the way they would like it to be described but the number of transactional moments that happen if you can save minutes it's huge but Mm -hmm. really nice um really nice preview there for the podcast we're hoping to record with him ellie
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that.
1: You're all about soon, it's narrative soon. in the content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, also
0: a shameless plug for my uh, father-to-law to be. So uh, getting that in early. Well,
1: there you go. You know, not the nepotisms is a thing. But, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, that is the news that we've covered today. There's a couple of shout outs. And then actually the last one is pretty cool. So um, I actually, again, found had a favourite in my last piece of news there, but we'll come to that in a second. So shout out number one, Sean Robertson. You actually spoke about this earlier, Andy, about um, Sean is one of our data experts within the company and he's written a blog that looks at the demand for data modernization, the challenges businesses face to address the demand and the importance of a North Star for those on their data migration journey or modernization journey. Um, Super interesting. It's part of a series. The first one just kind of does an overlay of what data modernization is, the importance of having some sort of governance over it. And what I really love about it is they, um, I'm sorry, Sean talks about this idea of being like data drunk, where he references it. And it's a Mm -hmm. new term in the industry, but it's this idea that there's now so much data in existence that actually having no governance over it is like the worst possible thing. Because you're just going to find yourself going around in circles about what it all means, who's looking after what. Um, So actually not being able to go into your data not feeling drunk is probably the best
1: thing for that although particularly in a company that emphasizes socials as much and how <laughs> rough i feel this morning thanks to the events you organized Ellie. i think you know Our we've got date. we've got to accept that drunkenness is part of uh, the data oh, world particularly but sean's sean's incredibly clever he's yeah. um you know he's he's uh, you know i'm a generalist with my solution architecture my job is to look at the breadth of what's yeah. going on Sean's a specialist, but he, he does have a really good appreciation for all the other elements of it. And one of the conversations, I think, I think one of the elements of that blog that I I think he's found really interesting is that North Star element, that mm-hmm. idea that you need some guiding principles and Absolutely. also to know where you're going. Yeah. Um, we, we're having this conversation today, uh, he and I, about the fact that you know probably the next generation of tech debt, certainly I think, will come in the form of um, people having driven themselves into cul de sacs are gonna to need to reverse out of because where they've done their cloud migration or they've done their tooling automation, they yeah. haven't thought about the data implications of that. Right. Um, yeah. So having idea It's an crazy eye on that because now, how
0: much is in conversation at the moment mm-hmm. about that that's your prediction for the next
1: but but people are too busy doing things or implementing things to really think you know it's very easy to look at a problem like how do we deliver quicker and assume it's an automation challenge if you've not got one eye on what the data architecture is around that there's going to come a point where you're going to want to leverage that and you're going to realize we're going to have to redesign all this from scratch and that that is just the next set of technology there and i think Mm -hmm. having that north star even if you're not confident in what it is you're going to be delivering yeah. Knowing the sort of models and frameworks that you want to work towards, Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think Sean's blog is really interesting. And I can't wait for the rest of the series.
0: Yeah, no, completely agree, completely agree. Um, we also would love to invite you guys to come along to our next Amazon Immersion Lab on the 28th and 29th of September. This is in partnership with Amazon Web Services and is a just a great opportunity to learn how to create customer experiences that your customers are expecting that you want to be delivering Uh, it shows you how to leverage amazon connect and the applications that sit within that platform and allows you to build upon traditional approaches that you might already have in your company um, but are looking to enhance or modernize to make sure that you're delivering an omni-channel experience for your customers to make sure there's a seamless experience making sure that your your channels are working in sync with one another your data is being collected in a way that like enables and empowers your agents it's really, really interesting two days. It's completely free of charge to sign up. Um, we've run a few of them in the past with great success. So if you're interested in getting hands-on experience with a cloud-based contact center, this is the lab to get involved in.
1: We don't care. You can come from anywhere. You can be a competitor. Literally. You can be a customer. You can be someone who's just dabbling with a career change. Get yeah. in there. Try it. It's interesting.
0: And, and my mum. you're also invited. If you want to learn a little <laughs> bit more about what I do for work, you're also more than welcome to attend. But um, and last but not least, and this is actually really cool. So obviously we started in Scotland um, as ECS and we obviously our flagship is now down in London, but our roots are very much within um, Glasgow. And so it was really great to see the UKTN drop in the top 10 tech startups who have contributed enormously to the boom in tech scene in Scotland, operating across industries such as space tech, cybersecurity, and lots more. And actually the one that stood out for me was Intelligent Growth Solutions, or kind of, I don't know, I just find this whole thing really interesting. And this was founded yeah. back in 2013. And what it does, it looks at how we can, or it's a global population, and it looks at how we're going to feed the global population. And it looks at ways of um, indoor agritech and how we can basically make sure that we're maximizing how food grows. And I think they call it a vertical growth tower So where they produce food in urban regions and maximize yields. Um, It's known for creating the first vertical farm in Scotland in 2018. And it allows producers to grow crops all through the year by controlling factors such as airfo, lighting and temperature. I find this fascinating. It was obviously like we've seen a massive shift in the agriculture in our history. um, So obviously from traditional now to to modern agriculture. And this is now the next shift of that. And we're looking at, again, multi-story buildings growing our our next crops that are going to fill the aisles, and considering we've managed to upset quite a few nations around the world, um, <laughs> it's probably about time we actually start making sure that we have our own yeah
1: resources
0: available to us. If but, we're but in you country.
1: see, you see the stuff flow through as well. So, being the big old geek I am, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I get excited about um, those sort of vertical growth planters that you can use for things like salads, that kind of thing. Yeah. They grow within like eight days. You've got a full crop that will see for yeah. weeks um they're about 400 no. quid but you're like mm, don't want to treat myself for christmas <laughs> and you know and and that flows out of this type of technology so there's some really interesting stuff going on in the uk in on the continent in the us around this kind of stuff um you know i like you say you know our our company you know we're We are still ECS, we're a wholly owned subsidiary by, um, you know, our our new parent company, Global Logic, and that's great, we've got loads of interesting capabilities, but we're still a company that's officially headquartered in Glasgow, and I've spent a huge chunk of my life working with Scottish startups, and, you know, there, there is a different perspective and approach. We often talk about, like, having a plurality of perspectives. The Scottish yeah. tech scene is really interesting. The, yeah, a hugely entrepreneurial spirit, and going yeah. all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, real heavy reliance on innovation, engineering, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and a culture that really values education. Yeah. So yeah, Scottish startups are super interesting. You know, things like Sky Scanner and all that sort of stuff, but. These yeah. guys, yep, very interesting. The list was interesting. I think the thing that I most like about working with startups generally, but also Scottish startups, is and more so probably, is that not only are there interesting technologies and in that entrepreneurial spirit, but within startups, you've got a much safer framework to work in ways and build corporate cultures that you wouldn't necessarily expect okay most of the consultancies i work for do work within huge organizations like banks or pharmaceutical companies or oil and gas or that kind of stuff and yeah. you go when you experience the culture somewhere like barclays hsbc all that kind of stuff and there's a there's a certain predictability to it it's bureaucratic because it has to be because it's yeah. the scale it is in a heavily regulated environment but within startups you can find these it's almost like a Darwinian evolution of building cultures that work and trying things and then changing them and stuff. And it, it leads to very di- very meritocratic, very flat cultures where you can talk to people at any scale, where you can be very honest with each other. Um, yeah. Sometimes that can end up a bit shouting and stuff. But one of the things that I really like about startups, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. one of the things that I like about startups, you know, whether they're US startups, British startups, Scottish startups, in particular, that's a culture I'm more familiar with, is that experimentation with culture about being able to do the right thing because you can make every decision every day. You can see that in terms of uh, as they grow and get bigger, you know, when when you deal with what, what's the culture of an organization like Salesforce that where the CEO says, you know what, I'm not happy with some of the rules around bodily autonomy that, that women are seeing and I'm gonna to offer to just ship them to a state they wanna to go to, to get away from those kind of things, yeah. compared to an organization like Google that starts out saying, do no evil and the next yeah. you know is dodging tax it's it's these cultures build up do you keep them as you get bigger do you lose that culture do you carry Live on your it? culture like stand by it and again yeah.
0: be don't be this is what's really funny again i work but you in can
1: experiment in startups with it sorry yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely and this is what's really yeah so i i like marketing right so i have brand guidelines i have a certain line that i know i'm not allowed to cross over i know there are certain points of view that you know perhaps we want to it's not even stay silent on but we just don't want to It's it's we don't feel it's anything to do with us because of what the industry we're in. So if things are going on around the world. Obviously, we can pick and choose what we feel um, we want to represent or we want to stand by, and that's such an interesting thing from a marketing perspective because you you kind of take the human out of the business, and actually, when you yeah. look at businesses. That's all we're made of, right? We're yeah. just made of an organization of people who care about this sort of stuff. And so I find it really interesting. She said Salesforce, they really put their money where their mouth was and they, mm-hmm. they made sure that their, their staff were looked over and safe mm-hmm. and were given the option to be able to, to move mm-hmm. to a place that they felt more comfortable. And I think that's an incredibly important Thing to have happened um and hopefully is a beacon for other businesses to follow suit and say actually this this isn't always bad for business which i think is what the fear is that if you stand for something that isn't necessarily aligned to what your industry is or what, what you do for work that you're automatically going to get shut down for it and i think that
1: yeah and i've liked the bravery of working in startups that go you know what it's a big sector if someone doesn't like us taking a stand on these things we'll go we'll go work with someone else right yeah there are lots of people to go work with and i actually think that a lot of the things that you and roy do and sorry we should name check everyone else like emma and uh, louise doing that marketing department uh, actually helps us describe you know the best of what we are and and you know it, it allows us to tell people about that in terms of new people starting in the company but also um just for ourselves just to be clear what our mission is what you know what we're hoping to achieve as an organization what we stand for um you know we're good telling the customer the truth you know we're not going to be about making the sale we'll do it politely but you know we're you know we you know we'll do what we say we'll do we're about integrity and can't always live up to that but knowing that you should Um, that's a hugely important message that gets to come out from you guys in everything we do. It's It's integrity, isn't it? It's making sure Mm. that you start by something. But I like, yeah, so I like working with startups because you get to experiment with those cultures and you get to, it's easier to live your values in the early days when there's few enough of you that you can be clear on what they are. But to some extent, you also understand if you believe in those values because things are a bit desperate and lean at the beginning when you're a startup. (laughs) 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 There, There is a temptation to make some bad decisions. Um, but yeah, the Scottish startup culture is an interesting one. I've been lucky enough to spend more years than I care to remember working in it. It's incredibly entrepreneurial, really honest people, very yeah. interesting area to work in. And you know, you hope that you can carry those cultures through. So it's not just about the tech; it's also about people. And yeah, yeah I, I, hope- I enjoy it. It's a great sector.
0: Absolutely. And it's quite nice. I mean, I love Scotland for its whiskey. Obviously, Brewdog is up there. You said Skyscanner. So the thing they're famous for, but actually, again, this, it, what was really great about this article was the fact that, oh, wow, you know, you're know, you also looking at agri-tech. You're also looking at space tech and cybersecurity. Like, it's not just one thing that they're focusing on. It's like, right, there's some problems in the world. Let's see what we can do about that. And that's what's so lovely about this. I've just seen some people, individuals going, right, how do we help fix the world's problems today? And that was just a really interesting thing. And again, great, the fact that that's where we were from, um, so it's yeah. always great to pay homage to uh, to our history. So,
1: still got the original office. If you go, all if you ever want to see our finance team, they're literally in the office where the company was founded and the I've HR heard It's
0: very blue up there, like a very <laughs> blue office, something to the football team um, and our old CEO's uh, fascination there?
1: with one of them. A, a, yeah, a preponderance of the board were Rangers fans, yeah, yeah, and in fact, the mascot for Glasgow Rangers used to be a member of staff. But um, but yeah, the yeah the sort of finance and HR team, sort of core and heart of the company, is still in that old office. I'm sure they never forget it.
0: Yeah. Um, that's it. That's all the news today. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode uh, with Tebs and I. We hope you enjoy your weekend. We look forward to catching up next week with more tech news. Um, take care.
1: Cheerio.